Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our weekly podcast. My name is Richard, and on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in to our online Easter service. This last week, we've been observing Passion Week, and during this week, we look at the last moments of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's life and remember the sacrifice and the gift of grace that God has given to believers. This week, Pastor Chris is going to look through 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-11 through 11, to show us how God displayed His mercy and grace and how we are supposed to respond in return. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into this week's study. To say it was hard times was the understatement of the century. People were struggling to eat. People were struggling to find clean water. People were struggling to find work. They were stuck and confined in their own homes. It was a very difficult time there in Samaria. What had happened was an incredibly strong famine hit the land. They had no crops. They had no water. And because of that, they had no food. And to make a very bad situation worse, those people were at war. There was a neighboring country who had besieged them, who had surrounded their territory, so they couldn't bring goods in and they couldn't get goods out. They were a culture that was completely stuck. Their economy had come to a screeching halt. Their life was in absolute shambles. And they asked the question, where is the Lord? Now, as we look at our lives today, as we look at our world today, people are losing their jobs, people are losing their health, and sadly, people are losing their lives because of this global pandemic. It's, a, it's just a, a terrible time. It's a, a very hard time. It's a difficult time. It's a time in which we could lose hope. And I'm hearing people, and I'm, I'm hearing murmuring of the same questions that they were asking back then. Where is God? Where is the Lord? Why isn't he doing anything? If God is a God of love, then why is he allowing things like this to happen? Let me just shoot it to you straight. Let me be as as forthright and honest as I can. God does not owe you an answer to any of your questions. God doesn't owe you. God isn't indebted to you. God doesn't uh, promise you to bring your life back into normalcy. God doesn't promise you to have an easy and comfortable life. God doesn't owe you anything. But because God is a God of love, because God is who God is, he has proven his love. He has shown his love to the entire world. And so when our life is upside down, when our world is topsy-turvy, when things make absolutely no sense, we can look to God's love. We can look to himself, and there we find comfort, and there we have life. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. And in 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to show you, we're going to see what God has to say about his proving love. God has shown his love. God has proved his love. God demonstrates his love to the world so that when we have times like this and we're living in moments of uncertainty, we can trust the Lord and we can be victorious. So flip over to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to take verses 9, 10, and 11. So it's not the gospel of John. It's his epistle. So it's almost at the very end of your Bible. First John chapter four, verses nine through 11. And the, the writing breaks down like this. We're going to look at love displayed five ways in which God proved his love to the world so that you don't have to have any doubts. And then love demanded based upon what God has done for you, how are we to respond in return? 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
So let's get back to verse 9 and let's kind of break this down. And I want to show you how God has already proven his love to you. Verse 9 again says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, or you can translate it to us. Now, that word manifest, we don't use it that often. And what it means is just to put on display. And what, what John is saying about God is this. God has shown to the world. God has put on display. Think of it as God has put on the big screen. God went IMAX with it to show the world his love, to show the world that he cares, to show the world that he's uh, concerned and he will not forsake it. So God manifested his love. And this is how he went big time. This is how he showed the love of God on the big screen for us. But John goes on and says, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent. Now I want to stop right there. God sent. That's the very first place in which John starts this incredible proof that God is love and that God loves you. God sent. If you're a note taker, you can just simply jot down this term. God displayed his love graciously. First point, if you're a note taker, God displayed his love graciously. And this is what I mean. God sent. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're, if you come to church on Christmas, Easter and Mother's Day, if you're just not really familiar with the Bible, this concept of God sending is, is foreign. And I totally get that. Before I was a Christian, when I heard stories of a guy building a boat and putting a bunch of animals in it, when I heard about a little guy beating a giant, all of those things kind of sounded foreign to me. So what does it mean that God sent? Here's kind of the big picture. Here's the the Cliff Notes version of, of what the Bible is trying to say. When God created everything, he created man. And he created man in his own image and according to his own likeness. What that means is human beings uniquely, human beings specifically have traits, have characteristics and responsibilities that God has given only to humankind. God has called man to rule and reign over his creation. The animals are not given that command. God has given us a soul which lives on forever. Now, that might be in the non-smoking section of eternity called heaven, or that might be in the smoking eternity of of eternal life, which is hell. But either way, God has given you a soul that lasts forever. And unfortunately, for Lassie and for Pluto, that verse that all dogs go to heaven is not in the Bible. It is unique to man. God uniquely gave man moral code. In other words, a objective moral reality. You and I understand there is good and that there is evil. We understand right from wrong. God put that in the heart of every human being. Animals and other parts of creation do not have this ability to understand good from evil, right from wrong, or have the idea of this objective moral law. So God made man unique. God made man personable. God made man incredible in his image and in his likeness. And Adam, the first man, walked with God. And that was the whole point. The whole point of human beings is to walk with God, to rejoice with God, to worship God, to glorify God, to honor God in everything that we do. And Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Imagine how cool that would be to to be with God and understand God and have that resource with you and to know that you are protected and loved and no harm could befall you. But God gave Adam and his wife Eve house rules. In fact, he gave them one law or one thing that they should not do. And that was to stay away from a tree, to not eat of the tree of good and evil. Well, you know the story. And if you don't, here it is. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They broke his house rule. They violated his law. 
And the Bible calls that sin. And all sin is, is missing the mark, breaking the law, violating God's house rules. That's what sin is. And here's the tragedy of sin. Sin destroys the relationship between God and his creation. So you look at the world today and there's viruses going around and there's famines and there's earthquakes and there's wars and there's sadness and there's death and none of that, none of that was a part of God's intention. That is all a direct result of this thing called sin or human beings disobeying God. Now, I know this is going to sound really, really hard for you to believe, but I'm a sinner. Now, I know, I know it's difficult. I know it's hard to grasp, but I'm a sinner. I've broken God's law. And the Bible says you are too. In fact, the entire world has broken God's law. So here's the issue. God is perfect. God is holy. Anybody who's going to dwell with him must be perfect and must be holy. And I'm not, and you're not. So how, how in the world can we reconcile that relationship back to God? Well, John tells us God sent. God is the one who has taken the initiative to restore and reconcile this relationship. We messed up, and yet God has taken it on himself to restore. That is what we call grace. God's display of love is a gracious love. I messed up. I am deserving of nothing but punishment, yet God stepped in and God sent. Now, this concept of grace, grace is not getting what you do deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So let me kind of explain that. Grace is not getting what you do deserve. The Bible says this, that all have sinned, and and I, I would agree with that, and I confess that, and maybe you do too. The Bible says all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And yet grace comes in, and I don't get what I deserve. I deserve to be in the smoking section for all eternity, and God says no. The second thing grace does is I get what I don't deserve. God blesses those who follow him, those who trust in him, those who place their faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God gives them grace. And with that comes blessing. With that comes gifts and opportunities and incredible things that God just blesses his people with. And I do nothing to deserve it. It's all grace. It's getting what I don't deserve. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. So February 14th, Valentine's Day, wasn't the best day uh, for me. A lot of things happened that day. But one thing that, that did transpire was I got a phone call from our worship leader, Richard. And on Valentine's Day, uh, our trailer right here off our parking lot was stolen. Somebody just drove up, connected it, drove right on off. So I got the call and there on Valentine's Day, we're at the church and we're going through the cameras and the police come and we give them the information. And this week I got a phone call from one of the detectives saying our trailer was found. Now, let me kind of explain how grace looks like. See, our trailer was stolen. The cops caught them and they caught, they got the trailer and they come to me and they ask, would you like to press charges? Now, I can have said a million different answers. One way is, yes, I want to press charges, and I want to press them to the fullest extent of the law. They did the the crime, now I want them to do the time. What that is called is justice. Because they did it, they deserve it, let them reap what they sow. That's justice. And trust me, friends, you do not want God's justice. That's the last thing in the world you want is God to be just to you because it's not going to look pretty. 
Now, suppose uh, this person came and stole the trailer and the cops came and they come to me and they say, Chris, would you like to press charges? And I say, you know what? No, it's okay. Don't press charges. In fact, I'm sure they learned their lesson. Just let them go. That is called mercy. They didn't get what they were supposed to get. And although that's an aspect of grace, grace goes further. Now let's run this story back one more time. The trailer got stolen. The cops found it. They arrested the people who stole. They came, come to me and say, Chris, would you like to press charges? And I say, no, but I would like to talk to them. So I go and I talk to them and I give them the keys to the trailer. And I take out the wallet and I, I give them money for gas and I, and I bless them even though they did us harm. That is grace. And that's precisely what God demonstrated. God proved to the world by sending his son. So God demonstrated or displayed his love graciously. Let's look at point number two. God displayed his love dramatically. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Now, this display of love is dramatic. It's absolutely dramatic. I mean, God did not send angels into the world to save it. God didn't send Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God didn't send Moses or Elijah. God didn't send King David to come and save the world. God didn't send pastors. God didn't send preachers. God didn't send prophets into the world to save it. No, God sent his only begotten son. The word, Greek word is monogenes, broken up into two words. Mono, which means one, and genes is where we get our English word genes. It's one gene, or he's the preeminent one. Jesus is the one and only. And God sent him. God sent his son. It was a dramatic display of love. Let me ask you a question. If someone did you wrong, would you sacrifice your child for them? They did you wrong, and you are going to go sacrifice your child for them. There's not a person on this earth that would say, yes, but that's what God did. God sent his monogenes, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Now, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is considered by many one of the greatest chapters, not only in the Bible, but ever written, ever. It's incredible. And the reason why Romans 8 is so awesome is because Romans 8 has all these promises for the children of God. God says to every child of his, you will have my spirit, you will have eternal life, you will have an inheritance where you are an heir to me and a co-heir to Christ. I will listen to your prayers. The spirit will interpret on your behalf just every single promise that every heart could ever desire. God is pouring out in Romans 8. The question is, how then, how can I know that it's true? How can I know that God is actually going to give me those things? And in Romans 8.32, Paul tells us how you and I can know. And it's an argument. It's a rhetorical question, but it's an argument. And the argument is from the greater than to the lesser than. And I'll explain what I mean. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is Paul's argument. Can we trust God? Can we trust in the promises? Can we, can we really believe God is a God of love and he hasn't forsaken, hasn't left us? Paul's argument in Romans 8.32 is this, from the greater to the lesser. If God gave you his son, if God did not spare his son for you, 
If God gave the very best that he had, the most prized possession, closest and nearest to him, if God gave that, then everything else is an automatic shoe-in. If the greatest sacrifice God can give for you, God gave, then God will honor every other promise. And so God's display of love on Calvary's cross, God sending his only begotten into the world is a dramatic, dramatic form of love. It shows the world you are not forgotten. You are not forsaken. I'm taking this sin issue very seriously to the point that my own son is going. So God's display of love is gracious, dramatic. Here's number three, the beginning of verse 10. God's display of love is purposeful. Verse 10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. God sending his son was a dramatic, gracious display that had intent and purpose. He didn't just ascend him just so that Jesus can get frequent flyer miles from heaven down to earth. God sent his son so that you may have life through him. The word life is zoe. And that word is not referring to biological life. That's the word bios. It's not re- referring to uh, eating and breathing. It's not referring to the physical existence. It's referring to the essence of life. What it means that God sent his son so that we might have life is saying God is sending his son so that you may have and live life the way it's intended to live. In Costa Rica, they have this motto around the country called Pura Vida, which means a pure life. And how they interpret it is living life the way it should be, stress-free, without anxiety, living life day by day and just taking it all in, just the, the goodness, the goodness of life. That is why God sent his son, so that he can offer you that life. I want to be frank with you, especially if you're, you're not a believer, you don't come to church, or you're not into the whole God thing, that's okay. But I do want to share with you this very dramatic point. You will never have peace. You will never have a true joy. You will never, never have absolute contentment outside of Jesus Christ. You were created to walk with God. You were created to have union with the Lord. And when you forsake that, when you're not made right, when you're not living your purpose, then you will never have the life God intended you to have. So this idea of Zoe or this pure life also has a connotation of everlasting life. It's a spiritual life that you live with God forever and ever. If you have your Bibles, just flip over to John 3.16. John 3.16, I'm sure you've seen people waving that in the stadiums and preachers preaching on it, and you find it on the Jesus junk, right, on the mugs and posters of your house. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's his display. That he sent his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting zoe, have everlasting life. So God's display of love is a purposeful display. It was intended to bring you a satisfaction and a peace and a contentment with God in this life and It is to get you into heaven for all eternity. That is why God sent his son. Here's the fourth reason that you can know that God is a God of love 
and that you can trust this God even in bad times. God displayed his love originally, originally. And what I mean by that, you can find it out for yourself right here in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We didn't love God, he loved us. You know, sometimes I drive and you, you'll see little bumper stickers and, and a bumper sticker might say or read something like, I found Jesus. Now to me, I'm like, praise the Lord. There's a sister, there's a brother in that car, amen, praise the Lord. I found Jesus. But it's very wrong theology because here's the truth. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. That's the truth. We love God because he loved us first. God's love was initiating. Our love is responsive. Ours is a love responding to his love. God's love is initiating. He loved us before we ever loved him. The Bible says this, and it's incredible, that you are God's workmanship. And the word is poem. You are God's love story. And God's been stalking you for a very long time. In fact, God's been infatuated. God has been in love with. God has tenderly cared for his creation and is madly in love with you far before you ever said, I love God. How long has God been loving you? Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 4. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. How long has God been madly in love with you? Before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So when people say, where is God? How could God? Is God even there? Does he even love anymore? He has loved since before Genesis 1.1, since before the foundations of the earth. So God has loved graciously, dramatically. God has loved purposefully, originally. Now let's look at the last aspect John gives us, and it's there in verse 10. And this is the whopper, so don't tune out. This is the Big Mac here. This is the, the main event. God displayed his love sacrificially. God displayed his love for all the world to see sacrificially. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now, that word propitiation is a big scrabble word. You know, if you put that down on the board, I'm sure you're going to win the game. It's not a word we commonly throw around. If you're a lawyer, you may know what it is. Outside of that, you've probably never heard of it. You probably never used it, nor will you. But propitiation is this incredible term, this incredible theological understanding that we must wrap our heads around. Propitiation means nothing more than this. We don't have to complicate it. Propitiation is satisfying someone's anger because you've wronged them. That's all it is. To satisfy someone's anger because you have wronged them. Let me tell you about my friends, Jack and Jill, not the ones who run up the hill. The, these people, Jack and Jill, their names are changed for their own personal identity. But I'm going to tell you a story about Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill, they worked together. They were co-workers with one another. Jack was known as a party animal. Jack was known as somebody uh, kind of a wild man. And Jill was really attracted to that. 
Well, this company had a party, and so Jack approached Jill, invited her to be his date, and she said yes. Sure enough, at the party, Jack lived up to his name. He partied hardy. He drank too much. He drank till he was obliterated. And then he gets in his car with Jill and begins to drive home, even though she said she was not comfortable with it. Jack began to swerve. Jack hit an embankment off the side of the road, and the car flipped. And there Jack and Jill sat there unconscious for several hours. When Jack finally came to at the hospital, his head was throbbing, his body was aching, and he looked to the doctor and he said, Doc, how is Jill? And the doctor looked at him and and shook his head and said, not good. She's broken her neck and she's paralyzed now from the shoulders down. And she's very, very angry at you. She doesn't want anything to do with you. As time went on, Jill got a lawyer and Jill's lawyer, um, summoned Jack to court. He was being sued. And the court only had one question they wanted answered. What is it going to take for Jill's anger to be satisfied? It's this process of propitiation. What could Jack do to make everything right? You see, there's three factors. One, there was an offense that was committed. Jack drove drunk, and now Jill is paralyzed. Two, there was one who was offended, that's Jill, and there was one who was the offender, and that's Jack. And now in the courtroom, they only have one answer or one question to answer. How can Jack make it right? What can he do? And it doesn't matter what Jack feels. It doesn't matter what Jack wants. It doesn't matter what Jack thinks should happen. It is all determinate upon what Jill wants in order to have restitution, in order for this situation to be made right. That is what propitiation is. Now let's take that example with God. You and I have sinned. That's the offense. The one who is offended is God the one who is the offender, me. How then can I make it right? What can Chris do? What can you do? What can the world do to make it right to God? How then can we get his anger to subside? And ultimately, how can we be forgiven? And here's the answer. You can't. You can't. There is nothing you can do in and of your own power to make things right with God. There is no propitiation you can offer for God to say, I am satisfied and no longer angry at Chris. I, my wrath is no longer kindled because he has broken my law. There's nothing I could do. How can a finite individual who habitually sins against God how can I, an in, a finite individual, make it right with an in, infinite being? I can't. So what did God do? God sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Who was the one that was wronged? God. Who was the one who was to make it right? Me. Who is the one to make it right? God. He sent his son to be a propitiation. It is the greatest display of sacrificial love on, in the history of our world. He sent his son to die in our place. Just picture it. It's nighttime. It's cold. And Jesus is stressed. He's stressed so much that the capillaries in his body are breaking and he's sweating great drops of blood there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cries out to God three different times. Let this cup pass from me. And that's the cup of God's wrath that was intended for you and for you. So Jesus is there. Let this cup pass and three different times, God says nothing. 
Jesus knows I'm going to the cross. I am going to be this propitiation by which all people can come to my father. And then there was that familiar face in the shadows as it came up the hill on the south side of the Mount of Olives there in the Garden of Gethsemane, carrying torches. He can see that familiar face. That face was Judas. Friend, are you going to betray me with a kiss? And Judas begins to smother his face with kisses. And it was then that the Jewish leaders knew. It was then that the Roman soldiers knew this was the man that they were to arrest. And the Romans began to slap Jesus around. They began to pull his beard. They began to beat him, spit at him, mock him. He goes through three different trials, all fake. The first two with the religious leaders, the third one with Pontius Pilate, the governor of that area of Judea. All of them fake. The crowd is cheering, crucify him, crucify him. And Pontius Pilate knows he's an innocent man, but he loves his own power and he loves his position more than he loves Jesus. So he has Jesus crucified. The Romans take the Lord. They rip off the robe that he was wearing. They tie him to a log and they began to systematically remove the meat from his back off his bones. They take a crown of thorns and they crush it onto his forehead. They have him lay on this piece of wood and they stretch his arms as far as they can possibly go. They pull his legs down as far as they possibly can go. And it was there they cracked nine inch nails into his body. And they lifted the cross up. And it was to be a public demonstration to the world that this man did something wrong. But what the cross represents is this. It was God's public display that mankind has done something wrong, and Jesus is there to fix it. God demonstrated his love towards us by sending Jesus to the cross. There, as Jesus is hanging there, and the crowd is blaspheming, if you're the son of God, take yourself down. If you're the son of God, save yourself, as they ridiculed and they mocked. And all Jesus said to the crowd was, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And when he thirsted, they gave him sour vinegar. And lastly, he said, it is finished. The price is paid. The issue between man's sin issue and God's holiness has now been fixed through the person of Jesus Christ. He said, it is finished. And they took Jesus off the, the cross and there Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took linen and wrapped Jesus and put 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh burial stuff for him, and they put him into the tomb. And there the, the women watched as the Romans rolled the stone and sealed the tomb, and they left military soldiers there to guard it so that no one could mess with the body. I suppose... Jesus' disciples were a lot like people today and those in Samaria back then. They see what is happening in the world and they say, where's God? What happened? How could this be? It was a very low point. But Friday turned to Saturday. Saturday turned to Sunday. And there the women are heading towards Jesus' tomb. And when they get there before the sun is risen, they realize the stone is gone, the soldiers are gone, the body's gone, and they know three words that will change world history. He is risen. He is risen. God showed his love to the world by sending his son to die, to be buried, and to rise again the third day. 
Why is the resurrection important? It is vastly important. It's paramount to our faith because if a dead savior can't save himself, then how in the world is he going to save you? And so the implications of the resurrection are phenomenal. This is what it means that Jesus rose from the dead. Number one, it means that you can have a new beginning. Jesus rising from the dead, God sending his son to die, be buried, rise again, implies, offers, makes a way for you to have a new beginning. Now let's face it. Your life has probably not turned out the way that you thought it would. Your life has probably been riddled with sadness, heartache, dreams that have not been realized, expectations that have not been met. You have done things you're not proud of. You have made enemies. You've, you've done things that, that are atrocious and you feel guilty for. You have shame. You know, there's things that are burdening you down. The resurrection implies this, that you can have a new beginning. The Bible says, all things new. Those who are in Christ are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things new. So if you need a fresh start, if you're out in the world and you're scared of getting a virus, you're scared of death, you're scared that you can't pay your mortgage because you can't work, you're scared of your, your children being exposed, you're scared of your wife uh, being susceptible to depression or anxiety, whatever the case may be, if you find yourself in a place of vulnerability, a place of fear, a place of anxiety, and you need a new beginning. Only in Christ is that available. That's the implication of the resurrection, is God offers you a fresh start. And he also offers you a new ending. He offers you a new beginning, and he offers you a new ending. God is serious about this thing called sin. And those who have sinned, those will eternally die. The wages of sin is death. The wages of unrepentant sin is a eternity in hell. That's what the scripture says. But in Christ, because he rose again, because he satisfied God's law, because he made a way for you and God to be right again, he offers you a new ending, a life with him, a life void of sadness, an eternity void of tears, forever and ever of joy and happiness. That's what Jesus offers. That's how God has showed the world that he loves and he has not forsaken. It's incredible. God has displayed his love uh, graciously, dramatically, purposefully, originally, and ultimately sacrificially for you and I. So what does God desire of us in return? And we'll make this part very quick. What does God desire for us to do since he has shown his love to us? And the answer is in verse 11. He demands love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, I want to draw your attention to the very first word, the word beloved. Every single time in the New Testament that word has been used, it is always referring to a believer, someone who has placed their faith in Jesus. It is always referring to a Christian, someone who walks with God and obeys the Lord, always. So if you ask yourself, if you're listening to this message, if you're wondering, God has shown me so much love. What do I do in return? It starts with becoming a child of God. It starts with being a part of the beloved. Now, how do I do that? This is how you do it. You commit your sin to the Lord or you confess your sin to the Lord. You repent or turn from your sin and you place your faith in Christ. Now, what does that mean? 
Confession means I go to God humbly and I say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And these are all the things that I've done wrong. Confession is you telling God everything that you know to be wrong. And guess what? He already knows. That's the beautiful thing. There are sins in your life you don't even know about that he knows about. But God is calling you to that place of humility where you say, you are right and Lord, I am wrong. It starts there at confession. And then it's followed by this idea of repentance. And all repentance is, is turning the other way. So if I'm walking this way and I repent, all it means is I turn directions. If you've been living a life where you're walking as your own captain, as your own God, you're, you're the commander of your own ship, you won't be told what to do, nobody's going to tell you how to do it or when to do it, you, like Frank Sinatra, are going to do your things your way. Repentance is saying, no, now I'm going to do things God's way. And then it says, or the scripture says, to place your faith in Jesus. Now, what does that mean? That means to intellectually understand and believe and then actually put it into practice. Many churches teach on faith and they teach on belief, and I don't think they teach the full story. They say all you have to believe is Jesus saves and that's it. But the Bible talks about you have to believe, you have to understand with your mind who Jesus is, what God has done for you, how he died, was buried, and resurrected from the dead. But then you have to live as if Jesus is your Lord, which means you are no longer in control of your life. You no longer tell God how things are going to be done, but God tells you this is how you're going to live your life. See, truly having faith means Jesus is Lord of everything. And if he isn't Lord of all, then he isn't Lord at all. Jesus becomes the Lord of your life. So you confess your sins, you turn towards God, and then you place your faith in Jesus. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what do we do? Step one, you get right with God. You make sure that you're born again. You make sure your sins are forgiven. God has made a way and God desires you. God loves you. God wants you to be a part of his family. But the onus is on you now to repent, to to put away your, uh, your pride and bring in humility, confess your sins and realize Jesus as Lord. And then when you become a Christian, how do we live from there? We live, verse 11, in love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What John is saying is this. Do you want to know the test to see if your salvation stuck, if you're really a believer, if you're following after God? How are you loving other people? What John is saying is this. If God loved you this much, then you ought to love everyone else in the same way. So I have a couple questions for you. Number one, do you love graciously? Is your life described as a man or a woman of grace? Because grace inherently within it has this idea of forgiveness. So let me back up even one step. Are you a person who is quick to forgive others? Because God was quick to forgive you. So are you loving like God loves you? Are you gracious to other people? Are you forgiving to others? Is your love initiating or is your love reactionary? Remember, God's love is initiating. Our love to God is reactionary. Is your love initiating to others or is it reactionary? Because anybody can love those who love them. Jesus said it's easy to do that. How about you love those who hate you? How about you love those who are an enemy? That's what God did. 
And that's what we are to do. And then lastly, when it comes to this idea of love, are you loving sacrificially? Are you willing to give up your rent for this month so that a couple families can have rent? Are you willing to, to give up a meal so others can eat? Are you willing to give up your car and take the bus so a, a family can get their kids to school on time? Are you loving sacrificially? Because that's how God loved you. God sent his son to die. His son came to die. And then the ball's in your court to die to yourself so that you can display God's love to the world. So beloved, as times are tough, as, as things are happening, as the future's unsure, this one thing I want you to get, to hold dear and to believe that God is love. And he proved that love by sending Jesus to the cross to die, to be buried, and to resurrect from the dead for you. Let's pray. Father, for all those listening out there who they're not sure if they're right with you, they don't know if their sin's been forgiven. And maybe even some know their sin isn't forgiven, but you want to be made right today. You want to know that I can have a life that has purpose and meaning. I can have a life that honors God. I can have a life that if I die today, I will be with God forever. That only comes through the gospel. That only comes through the good news. There's bad news in the world. There's fake news in the world. But God gives good news. And that good news is this. Today you can be right with your maker. So if that's you, if, if God's putting it on your heart, would you just pray this prayer with me? Father, forgive me. For I have sinned and I've fallen way short of the glory of God. And Lord, I know that the wages of my sin is death. And I know there is nothing for me to make that right. But you sent your only begotten son to die as a propitiation for my sin. You sent your son to die so that I can live. Lord, forgive me of my sin as I turn towards you and I walk a life that brings you honor and glory. Help me from this point on to be your friend and to be your servant as I walk with you in the cool of the day, just like Adam did. Help me, God, to be like Jesus. And thank you for sending your son and rising him up from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. That is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this teaching, share it with others and tune in next week to hear more as we continue through the book of James. If you are interested and would like to find out more information on our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find more information. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we will see you here next time.